This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Oh, maybe that's Pastor Diva. <laughs> yes. You know, the great thing about church is when we get it right, we all learn from each other. Isn't that wonderful? And I was just thinking about this group of people standing up here and how wonderful they are, how brave they are to say, hey, won't you come into our group and together we will learn how to follow Jesus better. We will learn how to take the journey of life together and we will support each other no matter where we've come from or where we are. And really, as Diva just said, our church literally functions around, that's the heartbeat of our church. Everyone's loved, no one's perfect, but with God, anything's possible. And so I hope you hear that message loud and clear. I want to begin our teaching time with a pastoral prayer. So would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we are here because we're followers of Jesus, and because you make a difference in our lives and in our world. And today, we're lifting up a number of things. Um, First of all, we're grateful for the people who were found still this week, buried under the rubble of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. I, I just can't imagine days under the rubble, and they're still alive. Thank you, thank you for preserving their lives. And God, um, we're also grateful that this week that our lead pastor search team started interviewing candidates, and we're excited that you will lead us, or maybe we should say you will lead a pastor to come and be our lead pastor And we're trusting you in that whole process. And so this morning, we're praying about that and asking you to lead in great ways. And God, we're also praying for Hillside Nazarene Church in our town and Doug Manson and the people that are gathered there right now. Would you you meet them in the same way you're meeting us? And would you bless and prosper their ministry as you are ours? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, helping without hurting. It's been an amazing six weeks. In the last six weeks, we have launched the impact ministry in our church. Dozens of us have signed up and are now volunteering in nonprofit organizations around our community. And yes, Even around our world, we have 11 people headed to Mexico next week to build a house on top of the the first-story church building that we've helped build, and the house on top will be for the pastor and his wife, so they can be right where the church building is. And I love the name of the church. It's called... La Puerta del Cielo, which means the gateway of heaven. Wouldn't it be great to go to a church like that? Yeah. So, and they're taking down tons of clothes and all kinds of stuff. It's just one of the ways 
that we as a church are making a difference in our world. And over the past, the first three weeks, we were launching Impact. The last three weeks, with this being the final week, we've been working on getting trained as volunteers so that when we go out, we actually can can serve with the touch of Jesus. And today we talk about this subject, how to help without hurting. And I'll give you a very crude illustration, but I think you'll get the point. So you have a terrible side ache, and we determine you have appendicitis. I know the problem. So I say to you, I would love to help you. I have a knife in the kitchen. <laughs> Are you on board with that? <clears throat> no. I might have all the desire in the world to help, but you and I both know in the end I will end up hurting you. And so we want to dig into this subject. And to do that, I want to go back to a scripture that I took us to several weeks ago. And it's one of my favorite scriptures about the ministry of Jesus. And here it is. The Spirit of the Lord, the Eternal, is on me. This is a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah about Jesus and his ministry. He goes on to say, The Lord has appointed me for a special purpose. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to, to repair broken hearts and to announce the year of Jubilee, the season of the Eternal's favor. Isaiah goes on to say, for those who mourn, it will be a time of comfort. And for those who grieve as well, God has sent me to give them a beautiful crown in exchange for ashes, to anoint them with gladness instead of sorrow, and to wrap them in victory, joy, and praise instead of depression and sadness. One day... Jesus stood up in a local synagogue and read that passage. And he said to the crowd, this day, that passage is fulfilled in front of you. Jesus was saying, that's me. I want us to know that that very description of how Jesus ministered to people and how he interacted with them and how he treated them should be an accurate description of how all of his followers also do ministry and also interact with people. That we would be about proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Isaiah said to the poor, actually what he was talking about was to the marginalized and the oppressed in his culture, which were the poor to proclaim the season of God's favor. This is the season in which anyone can have their sins forgiven, in which anyone can receive the good news of Jesus, in which anyone could have their life transformed through the love and the grace and the power of God's Spirit. We as a church should be helping people supplant their depression, 
and sorrow and struggle with a crown of joy and gladness. Yeah. No wonder. 30 years or so after Jesus died, the author of the book of Hebrews wrote this passage. He said, strengthen the arms that are feeble and the knees that are weak. Make level paths so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather what? Healed. Have you ever been lame? Yeah, we all have. Have you ever felt so burdened you, you knew you couldn't run if you had to? Because the weight of life was so heavy in that season. The author of the book of Hebrews says, well, then come to church because at church we strengthen the arms that are feeble, that are weary. And we and the knees that are weak. You've all seen this. A football player gets injured on the field and the trainer and the head coach run out there and if the player is injured bad enough, he puts one arm around the coach and one around the trainer and they carry him off the field. Yeah. They're strengthening the arms and the knees that are weak and make level paths. We talked a little bit this morning about our community groups. It's one of the ways that we make level paths for our feet. See, walking the journey of life is filled with challenge. But when we meet those challenges arm in arm with someone else, it has a way of taking the bumps, not completely out of life, but it makes them less bumpy. Everybody on board with that? You understand what that means? That's the value of community. We make level paths for our feet. And the end result is that when we are the most burdened, we don't end up being disabled. But rather, we end up being healed. You see, I know this about the kingdom of, of Jesus, and that is helping people has always been at the heart of the kingdom of Jesus. It's at the heart of this church. I know that. But there's sort of the elephant in the room we have to talk about, okay? And here's the elephant in the room. Take a look at the video screens. Though it has been well-intentioned and even logical, much of the help that has been given, hopefully not so much by this church, but I'm sure some, has ended up to either be ineffective or hurtful. How many of you have ever heard the term generational poverty? Yeah, we've all heard it, right? Generational welfare. Generational abuse. Right? Yeah. It's all generational racism. It's not that no one's been trying to help. It's that a lot of the help that we've given, we, maybe as a Christian community, 
uh, the Big C Church, we as the United States of America, we as civilization in general, everybody's working on these problems. But the truth is, if we're honest, it hasn't been that effective. And in some cases, it's even been hurtful. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that because the writers of Scripture actually throw out little warnings. Take a look. Jesus said this, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You see a problem there? One of my favorite sermons I've ever heard was given by Jeff Walling, and I'll never, I don't remember anything he said in the sermon, but I will never forget the title. It was called Four Signs of Camel Breath. You might have swallowed a camel if, <laughs> right? Because Jesus is saying to us, look, it's hard to get the priorities right. And sometimes we get all focused on an issue and it's a big deal to us. And there's this monster issue over here that we're not paying any attention to. And we think, oh, isn't that great? I strained out a gnat. I don't have to drink that nasty thing. And we don't realize we just swallowed a camel in the process. Yeah. Um, Paul says, look, he wrote to the church in Corinth. And he said, I know that you're excited about gathering as a church. But the problem is your meetings actually do more harm than good. And it is easy for us to get stuff backwards. And sometimes it's really hard keep them straight. The writer of, of Proverbs, King Solomon said, look, there's a way that seems right. It makes logical sense. Seems like it should work. But the sad reality is in the end, it actually leads to death. In all the help that we want to give when we go out and sign up and serve in all these nonprofits." We want to make sure that the help we're giving actually heals people and doesn't hurt them, right? Yeah. And we can't just assume, I'm here, it's going to be good. Because it might not be, right? And that's because the problems that we're actually going out to serve in and to make a difference in are rarely simple problems. I've learned this in life. No problem is as simple as it looks on the surface. They just aren't. I walked into my shop a couple days ago, flipped on the light, and I thought, man, this place is dark. I, will f I don't remember it being this dark. And I looked up, and I, and I have half of the fluorescent tubes were out. No wonder it was dark. Well, that's easy. I'm just going to go replace them. Easy job. They don't make fluorescent tubes for my shop lights anymore. You got to get LED tubes. So I got myself some LED tubes and thought, I'm in. These are the tubes you don't even have to replace the ballast. This has got to be easy. I walk up, I get my ladder, I set it up, I go up to the first light fixture, I take out the fluorescent tubes, 
I put in the, the nice new LED tubes, go back, flip on the switch, nothing happens. What? So I pull them out and I go to the next fixture and I thought, I wonder if that's just a bad fixture. So I set up my, my ladder and I climb up and I pull out the fluorescent tubes and I put in the LED tubes and I go back and I flip on the switch and the light comes on. I think, that's awesome, but it's so dim. How could it be dim? And then I look and there's this black line that goes all the way across the tube and I realize I have the LED tubes in there backwards and the light's now shining at the fixture and not out in the shop. No wonder it was dim. So I got to climb back up and I got to reverse them all, right? By the time I was done, I spent four hours and I still have one fixture that doesn't work. And all I was going to do was change the light bulbs. Nothing in this world is as simple as it seems on the surface. And so I want us to start with an understanding that when we try to apply a simple solution to a complex problem, we almost always end up hurting the people. Do I need to say that again? When we try to apply a simple solution to a complex problem, we almost always end up hurting the people. And I want to help us unpack that a little bit this morning. The solutions are never simple because they need to address the problem on three levels. Okay? The symptom and the cause and then the person or the people. Now, I'm going to give you another very crude illustration, but you'll get it. So I go to the doctor, and I have a headache. I have a really bad headache. Is that the symptom or the root? Well, it's only the symptom. And the doctor says to me, oh, good for you. We have stuff to help that. It's called Tylenol. And, you know, go home and take this Tylenol. If that doesn't work, I'll give you a stronger prescription for Tylenol. If that doesn't work, I can give you Tylenol with codeine. And if that doesn't work, I can get you oxycodone. We have stuff that will handle headaches. But what if my real problem is a brain tumor? Is that doctor helping me? No, it's actually hurting me. Because when we, when we apply a simple solution to a complex problem, we almost always end up hurting the person. Because we not only have to address the symptom, we have to actually address the cause. But if we address the cause without actually addressing the person while we can solve the medical issue, we might actually hurt the person psychologically. And in the end, a person who's psychologically damaged but has no headache is no better off than they were before.
Everybody on board with that? Yeah. I want to apply this in a way, and then I want to take us. By the way, this morning, I am just going to scratch the surface of this subject. Um, I am working right now with some people to set up a five-hour-long seminar that we will run on a Sunday afternoon, and the title of the seminar literally is Helping Without Hurting. And if you're really interested in digging into this deeper, okay, I wish I had a date I could give you right now. I don't. But as soon as we set it, uh, I will have a date. It will come with a free lunch, and we will dig into this, and we will be better at helping people. And I want to invite you to come to that. But today, I'm just scratching the surface because I want us to think about things that maybe we haven't thought about before, and maybe more importantly, I want us to be open to potential solutions that maybe we would not have been open to before. Are you on board with that? All right, so then let's, let's dig into this, this whole area, and let's apply it just through the lens of poverty, okay? I'll just use it as an illustration. <clears throat> A lot of studies have been done, and did you know that North Americans see poverty almost exclusively through the lens of material goods. Okay? They don't have enough food. They don't have enough shelter. They don't have enough education. They, they, they don't have enough uh, money. They don't have enough uh, uh, access to health care. It's some material thing. But poor people, if you actually interview people who live in poverty see poverty through the lens of psychological and social issues. Hmm. We're trying to give them material goods, and they're going, that's not my problem. The first time I went to India, this was years ago, I went expecting a very sad and depressed people to my amazement when we got to India people living in way beneath the level of poverty in this country when we got to India we found people who were happy and well adjusted in life it shocked me to my core hmm. in the year 2000 the World Bank did a study of 60,000 people who were living in poverty in different sections of the world. And they simply, I mean, they did a whole study, but one of the things they asked people to do was to define or describe poverty. Take a look at the screen. Here's what they said. It's the lack of freedom of being enslaved by a crushing daily burden of depression about what the future will bring. Is that defined in terms of material goods or psychological issues? It's all psychological, isn't it? Look at the next one. We're like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. The next one. It's like we have no power to do something we'd really like to do. 
And the next one, it's like living in jail, living under bondage and waiting to be free. Now, I could have read thousands of descriptions, but that was what consistently came. In fact, when the World Bank finished its study, these were the findings that they found. To those actually living in it, poverty is seen as a lack of dignity, feeling inferior, feeling unheard, feeling without value, feeling hopeless, feeling like we don't matter. How much money or food or shelter do you have to give someone to make them feel different about that stuff? They need money and they need food and they need shelter, but they need something far deeper. And when we throw physical goods at people who live in poverty without realizing it, we actually can hurt them. Wow. I want us to look at this. This is a principle we've talked about, but I, I think we might see it in a better light. Take a look at this principle. Jesus didn't just serve the marginalized and the oppressed. What did he do? He elevated them. See, he wasn't just treating the symptom he was actually working on the cause and he was actually treating the people, not just the problem. When we go out to serve, okay, some of you signed up for Giant Steps. And Giant Steps is this wonderful nonprofit that uses horseback riding to help people that are on the autism scale, to help people who struggle with PTSD, to help people who are disabled, to help people with learning disabilities. I mean, the list goes on and on. When we go to help them, we're not just helping them onto a horse and holding the bridle of the horse to make sure the horse goes where it's supposed to go and helping them off of the horse. There's a real person there who deserves to be treated with dignity and love and respect and care and gentleness. And when we do, we're not just treating the symptom, we're actually treating the person. As we close, I want to take us to the first three chapters of Genesis because if we're going to serve people well, we have to understand how life is supposed to work. And in the first three chapters of the very first book in the Bible, it's the very first pages in the Bible, we actually learn a really important concept. And here it is on the screen that God created every human being to thrive in the context of four basic relationships. And here they are. A right relationship with God, a right relationship with self, a right relationship with others, and a right relationship with the rest of creation. That is 
where life is supposed to take place. And here's the really important thing, and that is when one or more of these relationships is broken or missing, the result is always some form of poverty. When a person doesn't have a right relationship with God, they can't actually fully thrive in this world because they haven't even yet understood that their life is a gift from God and that eventually that life will go back to God and, and there's an accountability factor, a loving accountability factor, but nevertheless an accountability factor. And they don't understand that if their life is a gift from God, every other living, breathing person on the face of this planet has their life as a gift from God. So there is no one in this world that is not the son or the daughter of God. And if we don't have a right relationship with God, we have no way to actually understand that. And therefore... We are missing a whole chunk of life and we could have millions in the bank, but we're actually living in poverty. If a person doesn't have a right relationship with self and they don't understand that they are the child of the living God, and that they were designed to be in his family, not just now, but forever. And that that is their real destiny. That's what God wants for them. That's why he created them. And if they don't have this right relationship with self, and they think, I'm not good looking enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not bright enough. I, I'm not enough in any category, they end up living in personal poverty. Am I making sense? Yeah. If a person doesn't have a right relationship with others and they think that somehow my job is to be in competition with everybody else, so when I get a job at work, I'm going to make it to the top before anybody else does. And when I get a house, my house is going to look better than anybody, houses, anybody else's house in our neighborhood. And when I get a car, my car is going to be cooler than everybody else I know. And they don't have a right relationship with others. They will be tormented their whole life trying to get what in their mind feels like I'm ahead. And the further ahead they get, the more behinder they are. And I know that's not a real word. <laughs> but you got it, right? Yeah. When we don't have a right relationship with the rest of creation, I, I, mean, I could talk about this stuff all day long. What I want us to see is when we go out to serve, we have to have an awareness of all four of those relationships. Because if we're actually going to serve and elevate people, we have to actually be able to speak and love and care for them at all four of those levels. 
That's big. And when we do, our helping will heal instead of hurting. You see, if you put it all together, we help people survive when we supply some resource they are lacking. But we also might accidentally create a relationship of dependence that will end up hurting them. A few years ago, I went to India and I discovered that a mission that we had been working with for a long time, I discovered that there were 30-some churches and that the churches were prospering, but I discovered that the pastors were all supported by money from the United States and had been, some of them, for two decades. And I compared that with the job I was given when I moved to Petaluma 25 years ago. And I worked with an organization that said, here you go, here's $50,000, and it's got to last you two years, and we're going to give it to you in declining increments. A little more at first, a little less at the end. And by the end of two years, the church that you start has to be fully financially self-supporting. That's a big task. You, you got to buy communion trays and video systems, and you got to promote the church, and you got everything you need. It's all, including your salary has to come out of $50,000 over two years. That was hard. Now, maybe no one in their right mind would accept that. I don't know. Maybe. Could be. <laughs> but I did. And you know, God did an amazing thing. By the end of two years, this church was fully financially self-supporting. Yeah, you deserve a hand. That's a big, big deal. I went to India, and through an interpreter, I told them that story. Because people in India think that people in America have endless amounts of cash. And that we can do anything. And I laid out for them that task I was given. And I told them one of the best things that God ever did for me was to make sure that I didn't get a ton of people supporting this church and live on outside support for years. And I said to them, I think today is a good day for us to decide that over the next three years, every church represented here needs to be fully financially self-supporting. And you need to teach your people to give so that you and your family can live. You should have been in that room. Hard sell. <laughs> Hard sell. Of course, I couldn't understand anything that was said, but people started jabbering back and forth, and they stood up, and they started pointing fingers, and I'm like, oh, what did I do? And I went to the person who was leading that mission, I, and I will never forget what they said to me. They said, this is probably the best conversation 
this group of pastors has ever had. Now you fast forward today. We have built three church buildings in India. You might not know that, but we have. We no longer build church buildings in India. You know why? When a church has grown to the point that it's able to afford a building, they have to put up half the money. They put up half the money for the materials, and the pastors all get together and bring their construction friends, and they build the church building together. And the pride of ownership they have and the dignity that they feel is so different than when we built a church building and just gave it to them. Now, you see, take a look at this. When we enable people to thrive, we do that when we help them establish, repair, and grow one of these broken or missing relationships. And when we do it, we also elevate them. Now, there's so much more about this that we will get into in this five-hour seminar that I really want to encourage you. If you really want to learn about this, to, when I give you the date, put it on your calendar and come, okay? But I want to close with a picture and a story I know many of you have heard. But I want the truth of it to sink in. And here's the picture. It's hundreds of starfish on the shore. And the story is told of a young boy who walked on the beach and saw hundreds of starfish. And in his class at school, he had learned that if starfish are out of the water too long, they die. And that was more than he could take. So one at a time, he started picking them up and throwing them into the water to save their life. An older gentleman came along and said to him, what do you think you're doing? There are hundreds, maybe thousands of starfish on this beach. You can't possibly make a difference. Undaunted, the lad reached down and picked up a starfish and flung it in the water and said, I made a difference for that one. When you and I go out to serve, if we could have that mindset, I might not save the world, but if I'm signing up for a mentor me, I made a difference for that one. If, so, if I'm signing up for Redwood Gospel Mission, I made a difference for that one. If I'm signing up for Foster the City, I made a difference for that one. And as we do, we end up making a difference and serving with the touch of Jesus. We're going to move into a time of communion. And there's a story Jesus told one day that has this very same point to it. And I want to read you the story. Here it is on the screen. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, but loses one of them. Will he not leave the other 99 sheep in the open field and go out and look for the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he doesn't beat it all the way home. What does he do? He happily puts it on his shoulders 
And he goes home and he calls his friends and neighbors and says, look, come celebrate with me because I have found my lost sheep. As we take communion this morning, I want all of us to remember at some point, you and I were the lost sheep. Right? And Jesus left the 99 who didn't need any help and he came looking for us. And some of us he found in addiction and some of us he found in depression and some of us he found in confusion and some of us he found in the middle of a divorce and some of us he found because a friend invited us wherever we were. It didn't make any difference because Jesus came after us. He came looking. And the central message of Scripture is that on the cross, Jesus made it possible for every one of us to be found. And communion today is going to be about us remembering the day that Jesus found us. And how grateful we are. For those of you who are brand new to New Life, this is a communion kit. You were probably offered one on the way in. Okay. I apologize. It's not very user-friendly. Okay. There's a, there's a wafer-thin layer on the top that if you peel back, it will lead you to a little wafer. And in the language of Jesus, this little wafer, the bread, represents his body that was broken for us on the cross. And then you peel back the second layer and you can drink the cup. And Jesus said, the cup, this cup represents the new agreement that God makes with us. And in this agreement, anyone can be part of the family of God. So as we eat and drink, let's celebrate the fact that Christ found us and invited us into God's family. Now listen, communion is optional. No one has to feel obligated to take it. But communion is also open, which means anyone who wants to is certainly free to participate. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you made it possible for us to be found. Thank you that somehow you got through to us and that we are here today and we are so grateful and we are celebrating the day that you found each of us. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.